This podcast is sponsored by Talkspace. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. By talking or texting with a supportive, licensed therapist at Talkspace, you'll gain insights, discover truths, and experience breakthroughs that will improve how you live and how you feel. With Talkspace, just answer a few questions online, and you'll be matched with a therapist. And because you'll meet your therapist online, you don't have to take time off work or arrange childcare. You'll meet on your schedule, whenever you feel most at ease. Plus, Talkspace works with most major insurers, and most insured members only pay a $25 copay or less. No insurance? No problem. If you want to make progress toward a mentally healthier place, Talkspace is here for you. Now get $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com. Match with a licensed therapist today at Talkspace.com. Save $80 with code SPACE80 at Talkspace.com. Hey everyone, welcome to the Elisa Childers podcast. Merry, Merry Christmas. What you're going to be listening to on today's podcast is the audio from a live stream I did on YouTube last Monday. I busted some Christmas myths and busted the biggest Christmas myth of all and then took live questions from people watching on YouTube and on Facebook. You know, if you haven't connected with us on YouTube, what a great opportunity right now. Just head over to YouTube, search my name, Elisa Childers. You can subscribe to the channel. Make sure you click that bell icon to get notified every time we release a new video. Or maybe you haven't connected with us on Facebook. That's another great thing you can do. You're also going to hear some ministry updates. So without further ado, here is last Monday's live stream. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the last live stream of the year. Merry Christmas. I really wanted to do this tonight because I wanted to celebrate with all of you guys. Uh, this will be the last live stream of the year. It will also be the last podcast of the year. This audio will go to the podcast. Welcome in, everyone. I already see some people joining us. So glad that you're here. Uh, tonight, we're going to do some fun things. I'm going to give you some ministry updates. We're going to bust some Christmas myths, and I'm going to bust the biggest Christmas myth of all. So stay tuned for that. And uh, then we are going to take some questions. You know, what are your burning questions? What, what are you just dying for me to answer for you. This is what we're going to do tonight. I get a lot of emails, and I want to say, first of all, thank you all so much. Everybody who has sent in encouraging emails, uh, those of you who have sent in your questions and inquiries, all types of things, I, I'm so thankful, and I want you to know that I, I do my best to get through all of the emails and the messages that come through the website. I'm not always able to respond personally, um, but I, I so appreciate the encouragement that you all send me and the questions, and I, I always keep those questions in my mind and think maybe I can, I can address that on a podcast or something like that. So Merry Christmas, everyone, so much. Thank you for the support and for all of that. So a few ministry updates first. Um, okay, so if you read another gospel and you found it helpful, I'm so excited to tell you that we are coming out with a six-week small group curriculum for another gospel. It is going to be incredible, you guys. We already filmed the video, which is so stunningly beautiful. The company that uh, Tyndale hired to make this video curriculum did such a phenomenal job. They basically rented out a coffee shop 
workshop for two days, and we shot videos that go along with the different chapters from the books. I was joined by Jay Warner Wallace, and I was joined by John McRae from the What Do You Meme YouTube channel, and we just tackled a lot of these topics to help a small group type of, uh, of situation be able to walk through another gospel. And so guess what? It's actually the study guide, the participant guide is already available on Amazon uh, for pre-order. So it's not coming out just yet, but you can find that on Amazon and you can kind of get a head start on that. I also want to let you know, if you've got questions tonight, I want to get to as many of those as I can with the time that we have. If you have questions, go ahead and put in the chat, put uh, the question, the word question in all caps, and I will try to get to as many as I can. I'll do my best to answer. I don't know everything, but I will do my best with that. I uh, want to let you know if you are watching on YouTube or on Facebook, especially, okay, so first of all, on YouTube, for those of you who are watching, um, click subscribe. We have got some amazing podcasts coming up for the for the new year. Just some of the people that we have planned, uh, we're going to start the year off with Mr. Lee Strobel. So Lee has joined me uh, to talk about what's interesting. He just wrote a book on heaven. So naturally, I said, I, I'd like to talk to you about hell because heaven and hell kind of go hand in hand. So we're talking hell with Lee Strobel. Then that's a real, you know, great start to the year, isn't it? And then we're going to be talking talking with John Cooper again of the band Skillet. We're going to be talking with Neil Shenvey, who's been on the podcast before. We're going to talk about the relationship between deconstruction and postmodernism with Neil Shenvey. Uh, we're going to have Jay Miller back on to talk about historical Adam and Eve. And actually, one of the uh, most common requests I get through website and on social media is everybody is seems to want to know my thoughts on William Lane Craig's mytho-history approach to the Genesis narrative. Now, if you don't know what that is, don't worry. Um, but it, And so I, I have not read William Lane Craig's book, so I haven't been able to really offer any commentary, but J.R. Miller has. And he uh, has joined me uh, for an episode to talk about his thoughts on William Lane Craig's mytho-history uh, genre that he's assigned to Genesis 1 through 11 and what implications that might have for the gospel and for things like the inerrancy and inspiration of scripture. So we've got a jam-packed new year already ready to go for you guys. Um, and also just bear in mind that if you want to have access, you can have early access to podcasts, or if you want to have access to bonus episodes, it's kind of like an after party uh, with all of our guests, five to 10, sometimes 15 or 20 minutes with each guest where they take questions from our Patreon-only Facebook group. You can go to patreon.com slash Alisa Childers, take a look at the different opportunities and the different tiers. We'd love to have you join our community. We've got a great, great Facebook community of patrons in there. And um, we actually have a little kind of secret book club in there where we read progressive books. We read books that we don't necessarily agree with so that we can learn to discern those things and filter all of that through scripture and through uh, the worldview of the Christian faith. And so again, go to patreon.com slash Alisa Childers to check some of that out. All right, let me. Let, I've already seen the questions coming in. I love that, and keep them coming. And I will. Um, I'm going to scroll back up here so I can start to kind of see some of these questions coming in. I'm really excited to to get to some of these questions. Okay. Oh, this one already. We'll just start with this one. Do you know? Does anyone? Oh, he's asking. Is anyone? Does anyone know the second verse to Jingle Bells by heart? Um, 
well, you know, I don't. So there, I just, you stumped and I, I failed. First question, I failed. All right, but first thing I want to do before we get to this is I want to bust some Christmas myths. I've been introduced on podcasts before as a professional party pooper, which just cracks me up. Um, And so in the spirit of being a professional party pooper, I'm going to be a party pooper for Christmas. But the last one, the last one I'm going to bust, I think I think is going to be is going to be good and encouraging. So uh, I wrote a blog post a while back on this and I just thought it was kind of fun because we have so many traditions, right? With Christmas, we have so many things we do when we celebrate Christmas. And um, some of those are really just kind of based on legend. They're based on things we might think are in the Bible, but they're really not in the Bible. So the first one, was Jesus born on 25th AD 1? right? This is kind of the myth. People think Jesus was born on December 25th. Now, I want to acknowledge there are people who make a case for Jesus being born on December 25th, but we celebrate his birthday on December 25th, but there's really no biblical evidence that this is actually the day that uh, Jesus was actually born. And so AD is an abbreviation for Anno Domini, which means in the year of our Lord in Latin. So when scholars came up with the BC AD system, um, they wanted to kind of split history based on the birth of Christ. But here's what happened. So they miscalculated the year of Jesus' birth. And they didn't actually realize this till later that Jesus was actually born between somewhere between 6 and 4 BC. So I remember when I first found this out, I was like, excuse me, what? Like, what, what does this mean for everything, right? Well, what's interesting is that in Matthew 2, 1, uh, Matthew records that Jesus was born during the reign of Herod the Great. Well, we know from history that Herod died in 4 BC. So Jesus would have actually been at least about four years old by the time we get to AD 1 and uh, wasn't born on December 25th, AD 1. It was probably a little few years earlier before that. All right. The second myth we're going to bust, and this is a big one. This one comes around every single year, and that's the idea that uh, Christmas is a pagan holiday. Now, I will direct you to my friend Melissa Doherty's YouTube channel because she just had a video drop about this, so check her out as well. But, you know, we see it every year, just the, the claims that Christian is pagan, so Christian's Christmas is pagan, so Christians shouldn't be celebrating it. Um, But the truth of the matter is that Christmas was never a pagan holiday. So in the Roman Empire, there were certain pagan winter ceremonies, um, such as, uh, well, I'm going to try to say this, Die Natalis Solis Invicti, probably said that terribly, um, which might have been celebrated on December 25th, and Saturnalia, which is like a week-long festival um, that culminated around that same time, December 25th. Uh, But in the third century, the early third century, Christians began to associate Jesus' birth with December 25th. And in the fourth century, they made it an official holiday. And there, there are a couple of different reasons people give for this. Some people argue that it was because it coincided with the date 
night of the resurrection. And others say actually Christians made this holiday to actually contrast and, and contradict the existing pagan traditions. And so uh, one of the things that is used in support of this, as far as I understand it, is that that other um, holiday that I told you about from the Roman Empire, the Di Natalis Solis Invicti, uh, it honored the sun god in, in the eyes of the, of the pagan culture. Uh, but in Malachi 4.2, there's a prophecy about Jesus that calls him the son of righteousness. And so, I mean, I honestly can't think of a better way to uh, contrast and contradict a pagan festival to the sun god than to worship the light of the world, the true sun of righteousness. So um, do with that what you want, but we celebrate Christmas in my house because there's so much more to it than all of this, which we're going to get to with the last myth. But the next one would be, uh, of course, you know, every nativity scene, every Christmas play, typically speaking, has three kings, right? They You have three, three, three kings of Orient are bearing gifts we've traversed so far. And so that song really has like three massive factual errors in it. So I'm just going to be a big party pooper on that song right now. Um, number one, there there's no biblical record that there were three magi. It talks about three gifts, but the Bible actually never says how many uh made the journey uh, with those gifts. So we don't know that it was three. It could have been more. Could have been two with three gifts. I don't know. Um, they weren't, and, and also we use the word king, um, but Matthew 2, 1 tells us about wise men from the east who followed the star to see Jesus. Um, but because of their high standing in court, there's an early church father named Tertullian, and he wrote this. He said the east generally regarded the magi as kings, but they weren't actual like ruling monarchs. So um, they were wise men, they were magi, but they weren't ruling over any sort of region there. So they weren't kings necessarily. And they weren't from the Orient, right? We three kings from Orient are. Um, they didn't come from that far, but they probably came from somewhere uh, a little closer like Babylon. Now, this is really fascinating because that, of course, is where young Daniel and his friends were taken centuries earlier. And, and if you remember in Daniel 2.48, that Daniel was actually made chief of the governors over all the wise men of Babylon. And so these wise men, because of Daniel, would have been familiar with the prophecies about Jesus because they had the writings of Daniel. How interesting is that? I love that. All right. Uh, the fourth Christmas myth we're going to bust is that sometimes you'll hear that Jesus, the story of Jesus' virgin birth or, or the virgin conception is just a retelling of ancient mythology. In other words, um, you know, you look at, you might hear people say, look at Horus, look at Mithras and even Buddha. Uh, you know, they were all, there's stories about them all being born of a virgin and they just sort of attached uh, a virgin birth to Christ because that was something that already existed in the pagan culture. Um, but here's what's interesting, and I'm going to give you a resource on this. This is, um, there's a really great podcast by J. Werner Wallace. The title of that podcast is, Was the Virgin Conception of Jesus Borrowed from Prior Mythologies? And that's his uh, Cold Case Christianity podcast number 53. So I want to commend that to you for more detail on this, but I summed up a little bit of what he researched and studied. Um, so none of the most uh, early and reliable sources on 
let's just take Buddha, Horus, and Mithras, actually indicate that these figures were born of a virgin. So the earliest sources that we have on Buddha specifically mention that he was born of a royal human bloodline. Um, later stories will record more unusual events surrounding his conception, but they're really, there's not enough in common with the virgin conception of Jesus to even make anything out of it. But again, the earliest and most reliable resources we would have specifically mention the human bloodline. And then of course, Horus was an Egyptian deity whose parents were Osiris and uh, Isis. And early stories actually mention Osiris's seed being in Isis to conceive him. So you don't have a virgin birth with Horus. And then there's Mithras. So Mithraism was an ancient mystery cult. Um, but with Mithraism, there's no surviving scripture. Uh, we have paintings and sculptures. And those kinds of things can be tough to interpret. So you might have like a, a painting on a rock and you're trying to figure out what is this saying. And so the earliest version of the birth of Mithras uh, shows him coming out or emerging out of the side of a mountain, uh, leaving a hole in the rock. So like he's comes out like he's a chunk of rock. And so, um, you know, unless the mountain was a virgin, then you, you again, you don't have a virgin birth story with Mithras. Uh, so finally, our last uh, Christmas myth that we're going to bust today, in the spirit of being a professional party pooper, in this case, a professional Christmas party pooper, um, is the idea that Jesus was born in a stable. So this is, again, something we see in just about every Christmas play. And the reason people think that it was a, a stable is because the Bible does mention animals, although the Bible never mentions a stable. It actually also doesn't mention a cave. Uh, some early church sources, according to tradition, uh, recorded that Jesus was uh, born in a cave. And that would be from, uh, like, you can go to Justin Martyr, Dialogue of Justin, uh, Philosopher and Martyr with uh, Trypho, a Jew. And you can find that he's saying, you know, that Jesus was born in a cave, but scripture actually doesn't say that. Um, but Luke 2 is where we have the mention of uh, a couple of important details that Jesus was laid in a manger, right? So um, this is where we get the idea of the animals, because obviously a feeding trough, a manger is a feeding trough, so there would, would have been animals around. So, um, and also another scriptural clue we get is that it says there was no room at the inn. And I think our modern ears, we think of a hotel or we think of, uh, you know, like a like a Hampton Inn or something. Um, but there's no mention in scripture of an innkeeper. And the word that's translated into English as inn is a Greek word. Uh, and again, I'm gonna butcher this pronunciation, but it's kataluma, which uh, might be better translated as guest room. And so, uh, you know, uh, to see where this word is used in other places, uh, Jesus uses that same word in Luke 22:11 in reference to the upper room, which was the site of the Last Supper. And obviously that didn't happen in a stable. Uh, and so looking culturally at this, I was reading from um, Archaeology in the New Testament by John McRae, not John McRae, what do you mean, but the scholar John McRae, and uh, Kenneth Bailey, The Manger in the Inn. And they talk about the culture at the time. So Mary and Joseph would not likely have tried to stay at an inn because it would have been customary for them to stay with Joseph's relatives in Bethlehem. Um, and but, but with there was a census going on, so it's likely the house was overcrowded. And so um, there was that government-mandated census. And so the guest room that, that 
in that Cataluma was probably occupied by someone else. And so Jesus was probably born on the lower level of the, of the dwelling there, which is where animals were sometimes brought inside to keep warm and to keep them from getting stolen. And that would explain why there was a manger. But there's really uh, no mention of him being born in a stable or in a cave, as early church tradition suggests. So I, I, I want to bust one final Christmas myth, and this is something that I've observed in some of the media that my kids and I, we've been watching some really cute Christmas movies, loved them, we've really enjoyed them. But as I discern and look through them, it just seems like there's this idea that Christmas, of course, according to the world, has nothing to do with Jesus, but Christmas has become sort of this brand that means, you know, we come together and we show love and kindness and there's cheer and joy. And it's just a day where we can celebrate happiness and love and togetherness. And, you know, certainly we do. We do that on Christmas, right? But it's a myth that that's all that Christmas is about. What Christmas is really about is the problem of evil. And here's what I mean. So I Man, there are a lot of people in my life right now who are really suffering. I have friends who have lost husbands. I have friends who have lost babies. Um, I have friends who have lost parents right now during the Christmas season. And there's just a lot of pain. There's a lot of suffering. Maybe some of you watching tonight are going through uh, unspeakable tragedy. You're going through pain. And all the joy and the, the happiness everybody talks about at Christmas isn't something that's really your reality right now. And so I wanted to just share uh, an experience that my family went through. Um, the Christmas season two years ago in my family was a really dark and difficult time. And I wrote about this in my book, but my nephew, Matthew, uh, passed away suddenly due to a drug overdose. And it was two days after Thanksgiving. So it was literally the, the day after my, my mom and my sister had gotten their Christmas tree and had decorated everything for Christmas. And so for the whole Christmas season two years ago, uh, it was just, it was grief. It was grief and it was dark and it was difficult. And so when I think about what the real meaning of Christmas is, the real meaning of Christmas is not just coming together to, to find some joy and cheer. When we celebrate Christmas, we are celebrating God answering the problem of evil. In apologetics, we, we call it the problem of evil or the problem of suffering because it causes a lot of people to question the goodness of God. It causes a lot of people to question the existence of God. If God is good and all-powerful, how could he allow such suffering and such difficulties to, to happen? And if if, if he could, or is he powerless to stop those things? And um, so I like to look at it this way. When the Bible talks about God becoming flesh, the incarnation, you have God looking down at the suffering of people and taking on human flesh and stepping into his creation and suffering alongside of us, taking our place, taking our sin upon himself. So ultimately one day, 
He will end all suffering. And I, I want to read to you from um, my book. This is from another gospel where I wrote about the experience my family had with my nephew uh, who passed away so suddenly and how dark and difficult that time was. <clears throat> Grab a sip of water. <clears throat> and here's what I wrote. <clears throat> when we are faced with immeasurable and unspeakable pain, we have a choice. We can open our hands to the Father and fall at his feet, or we can shake our fist at him and walk away. We can throw the raw magnitude of our doubts, questions, and piercing grief into his capable lap, or we can gather it all up into clenched hands and declare him incompetent or non-existent. We all have that choice. Only within the framework of, historic Christian, uh, of the historic Christian gospel do these statements have any meaningful comfort? Only a, with a robust understanding of God's holiness, goodness, and sovereignty do these words give any hope. And that's in reference to 1 Peter 4, 12 through 13, which says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though some strange thing was happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Evil and suffering are ugly realities unleashed upon creation by sin. But our Savior stepped into our world, took on human flesh, suffered, and experienced death for us. When I saw Matthew's body lying on that hospital bed, I thought of Jesus. Jesus did that for me, for Matthew, for all of us. Jesus was well acquainted with grief and stood in our place. He felt our pain and died the death we deserve. But the story doesn't end there. Jesus physically rose and defeated the power of sin and death forever. He didn't just come to feel our pain. He came to end it. He didn't just give us an answer to suffering. He became the answer. I long for the day when Revelation 21.4 will come to pass, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. That is what we celebrate when we celebrate Christmas. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Nothing was made. Um, now I forget it. I, I memorized this. Nothing was made that... Or, through him, all things that were made were made, something like that. And then it says, and the light shined in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. That's what we celebrate when we celebrate Christmas. We celebrate God stepping into creation, the king of the universe, being born in a manger, humbling himself, being born in a manger to suffer alongside us and ultimately take our sins upon himself so that he can keep his promise to wipe away every tear from our eye and there will be no more crying, no more death, no more pain. If you have not placed active trust in the person of Jesus Christ and the work he accomplished on the cross, don't wait. Don't wait anymore. This is why we celebrate Christmas is the incarnation. God made flesh. So Christmas isn't just a day of cheer, a day of joy. It's joyful and it's cheerful because our Savior came into the world and 
He will wipe away every tear from our eye. He will end all suffering and pain for those who want to be in his presence forever. So that's my my Christmas myth uh, busting for you today. And um, I'm going to go to some of these questions. All right. So again, if you have a question, uh, it doesn't have to be about Christmas. It doesn't have to be about anything I just said. It can be random questions. It can just be your burning questions that you just would love to see me answer. Um, so I will start going through uh, some of these now. Uh, Ava is asking, what is the best topic to be well-versed in for apologetics? Okay. Um, the best topic to be well-versed in for apologetics. I think, Ava, that to start, I would say studying the nature of truth. And the reason I say that is because we're living in a, a, a culture that's marked by postmodernism. And so the best way I could describe postmodernism is that it's, uh, of course, it's a reaction against modernism, the hyper-rationalism of the Enlightenment and things like that. And essentially, it's marked also by hyper-skepticism. And so uh, the way I would describe hyper-skepticism versus maybe honest skepticism, because I think this is a really important thing for us to parse through, because like, I want my kids to have healthy skepticism. I want you who is watching this to have healthy skepticism. I want you to fact check what I'm saying. I want you to reject anything I'm saying that's not true. I would call that healthy skepticism. And with healthy skepticism, the goal is truth, right? We're seeking truth. We want to take what we hear, test it, figure out what's true about it, and 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 let go of what's false and hold on to what's true. Hyper-skepticism that, that is a, such a deep part of postmodernism is a type of skepticism where truth isn't the goal, but the goal is to just poke a hole in whatever somebody just said. And it doesn't really matter because that's not the goal. The goal is to find the, the error with it or find, you know, what, I, what can I be skeptical about what was just said? <clears throat> and those are two radically different things. Right. And so postmodernism marked by that hyper skepticism, uh, relativism. Right. So this is the approach to truth that would say something along the lines of objective truth doesn't exist or it exists, but it can't be known. And so therefore, we just all need to live our truth. What's true for you is true for you. What's true for me is true for me. And of course, this is uh, just one of the hallmarks of our culture right now. The problem, uh, and this is how it swings back around to relate to apologetics, is that the problem with relativism is that Christianity is a belief system that stands or falls based on the resurrection of Jesus being an actual event in history. And that's really important. Paul said that if Christ has not been raised, your faith is in vain and you're still in your sins. And so Christianity isn't, it doesn't really matter what your truth is. It doesn't matter what works for you. It doesn't matter what makes you happy. It doesn't, I mean, all of those things play a role, right? But ultimately it just matters if that resurrection happened. Because if that resurrection didn't happen, according to Paul, Christianity as a whole belief system is false. And so there is no my truth when it comes to questions like Christianity. And so we have to back up and in apologetics, and we have to get a really clear and firm grasp on the nature of truth. And truth being a statement, a proposition, a belief that lines up with reality, right? Um, truth is not relative. It's not based on opinion. It's not based on preference. It's something you discover. 
it's outside of you as the subject. It's not based on you, the subject. It's based on uh, what's in objective reality. And uh, so I think that getting sharpened up and really clear thinking on the nature of truth is a really great place to start. And then from there, you can go into all sorts of different um, avenues as far as that goes. Um, Okay, here's an interesting question, and I'll do my best to answer this. this. is Julian. Once we die, do we go to heaven or do we wait in unconsciousness till Jesus returns? A couple of verses I want to bring out on this. So there's a scripture that says to be absent with the body is to be present with Christ. And then, of course, we have Jesus on the cross saying to the thief, today, today, you will be with me in paradise. And so my best understanding of this is that uh, if, if you are in Christ and you die, you are immediately in his presence. Um, it's referred to as paradise. Some people call it the present heaven, I believe some people call it, or something like that. And so, um, no, I don't believe that you're unconscious uh, but there will, there's this other thing that happens in the end where the heaven and earth come together. There's a new heaven and a new earth. There's a lot of mystery. It's hard to understand what all of that means. Uh, but heaven, at least presently, where people who are, who died in Christ are conscious there now in the presence of Christ. Um, there's a bit of mystery about that. I, I, I don't know how to explain that, but no, we're not, I don't believe we're unconscious until, uh, Jesus returns. <clears throat> Here's an interesting question from Ashley. Do you believe in pre-tribulation rapture, dispensationalism, or amillennialism? Um, so these are describing es what we call eschatological positions and ways of interpreting you know, the end times or a revelation and parts of Daniel. Um, and so, uh, Ashley, I don't take a public position on eschatology. So um, I, 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 don't, I don't take a, a public position on that. I have thoughts on it. I have um, an inkling of the one I lean toward. But the reason I don't take a public position on that is because I don't think that eschatology is a topic that should divide Christians. Now, there's one view that I think is unorthodox and is not a Christian view. And that would be any view of eschatology that teaches that Jesus has already returned. Um, I think that that is uh, one of the core essentials in my view of the gospel is that Jesus is coming again in the future, right? So there, um, I think that if we keep that, that's sort of the hill I will die on, but I'm not going to die on dispensationalism or amillennial or premill or any of that. I have really smart brothers and sisters in Christ who hold all different positions on that stuff. A, a book that I will recommend to you that I think is very helpful if you want to parse through some of those things um, would be, uh, it's a, one of those four views on Revelation, and it's uh, one of those four views books, and I believe the one that I really liked was by Steve Gregg, and he goes, it's a parallel commentary where you read through Revelation and then you read scholars from the different views. And um, the only view that I would view to be unorthodox in there would be full preterist, which would teach that Jesus has already returned, not necessarily partial preterist that still holds Jesus' return coming in the future. So I hope that's helpful to you. Um, uh, Krista says, Joe Miller is such a helpful voice. I agree, uh, Krista. Joe is one of those guys that I want to elevate. I want to elevate his voice because um, he's, he's a good thinker. 
He's a good brother in Christ. So uh, just for those of you who are wondering what that's all about, J.R. Miller, he's going to give his review of William Lane Craig's uh, mytho-history genre that he assigns to Genesis 1 through 11 in the new year. So don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss some of these great videos that are coming your way. Um, Ike is asking, when you came out of your deconstruction period, was it ever your intention to become the go-to <laughs> to progressive Christian apologists. No, I, I listen, when I, when I came out of deconstruction, I wasn't even going to start a blog. I, I remember studying for five or six years and then becoming really settled on what I believed about everything. Not everything, of course. I mean, there's always things and I'm always open to changing my mind and all of that stuff. But um, just as far as being stable and solid and what I, what I think is happening in, with this whole thing, um, I really wasn't going to even I, I still I still kind of cringe calling myself an apologist because I just feel like I still have so much to learn and I just don't see myself that way. I, my apologist friends are astronomically intelligent and I just feel I mean, so no, I, I even struggle to use that word in reference to myself. Um, it really wasn't. Uh, but what happened was for those of you who are unfamiliar with the story, I ended up toward the end of my time of just my what I thought was my apologetics phase. I attended the Cross-Examined Instructor Academy that's led by Frank Turek and uh, other instructors like Jay Werner Wallace and uh, Greg Kopgel, Brett Kunkel. And I, uh, I went to that sort of as a last hurrah to my apologetics phase. I was going to go and meet some of these people who had been so instrumental in helping rebuild my faith and just kind of get to be in that atmosphere a while. Then I thought, well, I'll just... I'll come home and do something else. I had absolutely no intention of starting a blog or doing that. I, at that time, I thought I had actually gotten completely off of Facebook. I didn't even want to be on social media anymore. And I thought the world has too many blogs. They don't need another blog. I wasn't going to do it. But when I got there, basically what you do at the Cross-Examined Instructor Academy is you present a talk on apologetics to one of the instructors. And then the next day, you give the talk to a different instructor. And so I went and I, I gave a little uh, talk that I had been giving at church. And Frank Turek, uh, no, I'm sorry, Jay Werner Wallace was my first instructor. And he really encouraged me to pursue this. And then Frank Turek was my instructor the next day. And then he also encouraged me to to start it. And so I always tell Frank that this is all his fault because um, at the end of the, the three days, uh, he said, you know, you really should do this. You should go speak in churches. Now, at the time, my kids were really a lot smaller because this was 2016. And I said, well, I, I can't really travel a whole lot because I've got these small kids. And then Frank looked at me and he said, then you need to start a blog. And I just thought, okay, if Frank Turek tells you to start a blog, you start a blog. That's what you do. So I went home and I started a blog, had no intention. Well, sorry, my throat is like super dry tonight. I didn't have any intention of even talking about progressive Christianity on my blog. It didn't even actually, it, it just didn't occur to me because so many of the claims that I encountered among progressive Christians and in my progressive Christian class at that church were the same claims that atheists make. So the apologists that helped me, as I listened to their material, they were answering the same question. So it just didn't even occur to me to make it specifically about progressive Christianity. And then I was doing very basic little apologetics articles. And then I was at a conference and I ran into Amy Hall from Stand to Reason and we were talking and she said, you know, you should give your opinion. 
And because I had told her, well, I'm just doing these, I'm just kind of trans, I'm trying to translate the material that other apologists are doing for people who, like me, just don't know what these words meant. And I, I had to learn all this stuff. So I'm trying to make it easy to understand. And she said, well, you should give your opinion too. And I thought, mm, I don't know. I didn't really feel like I had a lot to say. But I came home and I thought, well, there might be some people out there who wonder if their church is kind of heading toward a progressive Christian type of situation. So I wrote a blog post called Five Signs Your Church Might Be Heading Toward Progressive Christianity. And blog posts that I had written before that were, you know, they might get a thousand views, you know, a few likes or something like that. But that one really blossomed. I mean, it really got a far reach. And that that showed me right there that people were really hungry to know how to discern progressive Christianity and how to wade through it. So that's sort of the first thing I thought, you know, maybe I need to, to talk more about this and write more about it. So uh, no, it was not my intention to, to be that person. And honestly, uh, there are some days, Ike, when I just, you know, it'd be so nice to just be totally anonymous and maybe just do like a little bread baking blog, take pictures of bread, make little flowers on top of the bread. <laughs> um, so sometimes, you know, this is a sacrifice. It's, it, it makes you a target and it's not always super fun. But there is a lot of satisfaction in the Lord in it. I know that I'm doing what God has called me to do, so there's a lot of satisfaction in that. Um, but it's it's not a, an easy um, calling, and so I appreciate all your all your prayers and all of that. So Shoe Speak wants to know: Does anyone here actually like fruitcake? I don't know. Does anyone like it? I am not. Um, I don't know. I don't know if I've ever tried fruitcake, so there you go. Here's an interesting question from Kina. I've listened to a sermon by John MacArthur, and he read a couple passages of one of N.T. Wright's books. Are you aware if N.T. Wright is kind of falling into progressive Christianity with his views on the atonement, or is he just a more liberal evangelical Christian? I'm curious to have your insights on this. God bless. God bless you too, Kina. Um, so here's my thoughts on this. Um, so N.T. Wright, I do not consider him to be a progressive Christian. Um, here's, here's my thing with N.T. Wright. His writings are incredibly nuanced, almost too nuanced. You can nuance the meaning out of things sometimes. And I, I do think if there's any um, anything about him that I kind of just go, man, that's the, the one thing I would be careful with is just that he's so nuanced that you almost kind of can't sometimes wrap your head around what he's saying. So in regards to his views on the atonement, I've heard him say out of his own mouth that he does affirm penal substitutionary atonement. Uh, he doesn't think it should be primary. This is my understanding of his view. And just that I haven't dived deep into N.D. Wright's uh, atonement theory. So take this with a grain of salt. Um, but I have heard him say that he does affirm penal substitutionary atonement. But I've also heard, I have not read his book on the atonement, but I've heard from people who have that the, the language that he uses to describe uh, what we might call penal substitutionary atonement is a bit of a straw man. It's a bit of um, not an accurate representation of what the view actually holds. And then he, he sort of does seem to deny it, but yet he'll say he affirms it. So that's kind of, he's confusing. I'll say that. He's he's definitely confusing when it comes to the atonement. Um, I find him 
incredibly helpful when it comes to the resurrection. His book on the resurrection is just an absolute slam dunk against anyone who would say that the resurrection of Jesus was not bodily or physical. Um, so he's a bit of a mixed bag. I don't believe that he is, I, he's not somebody I would call progressive. There would have to be certain things he would uh, have to deny more than uh, just the possible denial of penal substitution. I can't, I can't, I don't really know. Um, but I hope that that's a helpful answer to you. Um, I have been really helped by some of his work, and then I find some of it to be um, confusing. So um, Jelly Bur Burer wants to know my thoughts on Calvinism. So I'll, I will say this to start with. I have learned so much from my Reformed brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, honestly, when I was in deconstruction, it was the Calvinists that brought so much help to me. Some of the New Testament scholars that I learned from uh, were Calvinists, or they might refer to themselves as being Reformed. Um, I'm not there. I'm not personally Reformed. I don't really take a label when it comes to sovereignty and free will. Uh, where I'm at at the moment, always open to changing on this, is that my my what I take from Scripture is that Scripture affirms that humans have free will. And I can't make sense of the Reformed view of free will, which is compatibilism, because to me, it, I just can't find a way for it not to bottom out in determinism. And so I think we have free will, biblically. I also believe God is sovereign and predestines. And so I am not—I've uh, looked at Molinism. I've not, I'm not a Molinist— um, there, there, I have some. I, I, I affirm divine simplicity, which is the the theological belief about the attributes of God that God can't be separated into parts. And so, um, my understanding is that with Molinism, it's a denial of divine simplicity. So I'm gonna I'm gonna go with divine simplicity on that. Um, I do think Molinism is helpful in a practical sense sometimes. Um, so I don't know. I I I am not a Calvinist and. Please, all the Calvinists out there, please do not email me. I've had, I've had lots of deep discussions with very, very smart Calvinists, and I'm, you know, I'm open. I'm really open to changing my mind, um, but it just doesn't, it doesn't come together for me. So um, there, there are some things about Calvinism that, to me, don't make sense of what I read in Scripture about the justice of God and the nature of God. So that's where I'm at with that. But um, my Calvinist. Friends are brothers and sisters in Christ. I learned so much from them and so appreciate their contributions to scholarship and to theology and to, to all sorts of things. So um, that is just where I'm at. Okay. Um, let's see. Here's one. GMA Joe wants to know, when is it appropriate to call out false teachers? meaning those who claim to be Christians but do not hold to primary doctrine. Um, so I think that we have a scriptural mandate to call out false teachers, and we have scriptural precedent to call out false teachers. But we have to be so careful when we do this. A false teacher is not just somebody who holds to a different idea that you do on maybe what we might consider to be a secondary doctrine. Um, and I'm going to give people a really long rope. I'm very slow to do that, actually. Um, 
I'm very slow to actually say this person is a false teacher. And you're right, uh, GMA Joe, they would have to be denying core doctrines, uh, essential doctrines of Christianity. There are teachers that I think are in error on things, some things, um, but it doesn't necessarily mean they're a false teacher. They're a false teacher if they're leading people away from Jesus, if they're, if they're getting in the way of someone's salvation, in other words, in, in essence, they're, they're a false teacher. And Jesus said that uh, we are to judge by the fruit. I have a video on this, and you can look it up in my YouTube uh, channel. It, it, I think it's is it has to do with Jen Hatmaker and judging by the fruit. And essentially, when Jesus talks about judging by the fruit, he's not talking about the fruit of you know happiness or feeling good or some you know a doctrine or belief that makes makes you feel satisfied or happy in your life. He's talking about obedience. So if a, if a teacher is leading you to disobey Christ, that's bad fruit, and you are supposed to judge that. And if we look at Paul, the precedent of Paul calling out false teachers who are ship, he said they're ship shipwrecking people's faith, right? That's a false teacher, not somebody that might be a little more charismatic than you, not somebody who might, you know, be a Calvinist or not a Calvinist or somebody who might have a different view of the age of the earth. I'm talking about people who are leading people actively into disobedience to Christ and denying the tr the deep truths of the gospel. And so um, that's when it's appropriate, I think, but there also needs to be documentation for that. I don't, I, I see it all the time on the internet where people are like, this person's a false teacher. And then you read through and a lot of it is just um, them characterizing the person a certain way, but without a reference, like here's actually what they said, here's actually what they wrote. There's a lot of narratives that get put out there about people that once you start chasing them down end up not being true. And so I think we need to be extremely wise, extremely careful and slow to do that as well, especially when someone's had a track record of faithfulness to the gospel for a long time. We can all become confused about things from time to time. So that would be my answer to that. Um, so, uh, okay, let me see. Question from Amanda. My small group is struggling with attendance, engagement, and a low desire for deeper study. What are some ways to encourage the group to bring the focus back to scripture? Oh, I'd have to think about that one, Amanda. Man, I think that here's just my, my, my sort of knee-jerk reaction to this question. I wonder if it might be wise to just, I don't know if you're, you know, if you have influence over the leadership of the small group, I don't know how that works, but I think if, if the leadership decided to just, okay, we are going to just study a book of the Bible, or we're going to read through the Bible as a group, um, you're probably going to lose some people who are not there for that. That's probably going to happen, but that's okay, because what will happen is you will end up, more people will come who want that. Because the Bible is enough. We don't have to come together and find some fresh, new, cool, sexy insight to life, right? Studying the Bible is a well of knowledge that you will never plumb the depths of. It will never get boring. It will never get old. It will always be a new experience to read scripture. And so I think maybe to increase the desire for study is to just do it. And that, that's maybe a thought. I've recommended in the past uh, Tara Lee Cobble's podcast, The Bible Recap, which really helps you understand what you've read. I think some people can get sort of stalled in the Bible when they just, there's all the 
the clans and the, the numbers and the people and all this. And they, they're like, I, I don't even understand what's happening. Um, that's a great podcast to help you understand. And maybe the group could go that through that together and listen to that and then come back each week and talk about it. Those are just some ideas, but I think maybe just doing it is going to, it's probably going to weed some people out, but then I think others will come who, who are hungry for that and who want that. So, <clears throat> okay. Um, Michelle. Do you believe once saved, always saved? I have scripture to support both sides. Any side or wisdom you would have to share would be greatly appreciated. So, Michelle, at this point, uh, my understanding of the scriptures as a whole, and listen, I'm acknowledging that there are smart, wonderful brothers and sisters in Christ who disagree with me on this. My understanding uh, of scripture as a whole at this point is that um, if you are truly saved, truly saved, if you have put saving faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit seals you at conversion. Um, that's not something you're doing for yourself. It's not something you can actually undo. And so um, if it's my view that if someone has come into real salvation, and that's the key, is real salvation, really put their faith in Jesus, then they're sealed by the Holy Spirit. And that's not something that can be undone. You can't you can't sin your way out of it. Now, if you're a Christian living in sin, you'll be miserable. And if you're, if you think you're a Christian living in sin and you're not miserable, I would cry, I would work out your salvation with fear and trembling and question, am I really saved? If I don't have the conviction of the Holy Spirit in my life about sin, am I saved? Now, at the same time, I have people come up to me at conferences in tears sometimes, just thinking, I don't know if I'm saved. I don't know if I'm saved. And I, I question, I wonder, and I, I just, I'm tormented. Let me assure you, if that's you, if you're tormented, tormented by that question, if you're even asking that question, um, there's a really good chance you're saved because that's, because you want that, right? But it's the people who are like, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna live in sin. I'm gonna do it my way. Yeah, I, I, I said a prayer. I, I'm good. Me and Jesus are cool. Um, you know, if there's not that conviction, I would really question whether or not that was a legitimate salvation. And so um, that's where I'm at with it right now. <clears throat> Krista's got some good advice for Amanda's question about how to... <clears throat> Sorry, I've got some kind of a frog in my throat tonight. Krista's got a great question, uh, answer for Amanda about uh, trying to ignite that passion for, for reading scripture. So Chris, Krista, theology mom, says, I found it helpful to ask the group members what they'd like to study. Uh, it helps to increase buy-in, also take turns with leading. That's great advice there. Um, okay, let me see. I'm going to try to find... Da, 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 da. Okay, uh, here's one. I'll do my best with this one. Uh, Just Me is asking, can you talk about the concept of faith alone versus works? James says faith without works is dead. Can faith be true without someone's life demonstrating it? How do we balance these ideas? I think this is a really good question, um, Just Me. And this is something that I think about quite a bit. Um, there are a lot of more progressive type Christians who would say, hey, you know, Paul and James are in total contradiction to each other. They're hopelessly contradictory and we can't reconcile them. I think I, I don't agree with that. I think that they are both saying they're, they're attacking different problems from the same starting point. Uh, my pastor, my current pastor once described it like James and 
uh, and Peter and Paul are sort of standing back to back. You know how when people are in a war and they stand back to back and they're fighting out so that their backs are covered. He said James and, and Paul are kind of like that. They're, they're both shooting at different targets from the same place and they have each other's back. And so how I understand it is that faith without works is dead. And that's kind of goes with that last question. If you um, have no conviction, if there's no fruit of obedience to Christ in your life, if there are no works in your life being demonstrated, none at all, um, that is something that I would be very alarmed about. Um, so if you're really a Christian, there is going to be good works that come out of your life. Now, listen, with some people, that process is a lot slower than others. It may not, you know, some people get saved and it's like they're a completely different person the next day. Other people, it's a bit slower of a process. But, but if you look back, I, I've heard Krista say it like this. If you look back a, from a, a year ago and you're a little different than you were a year ago, if you see that progress, even if it's slow, um, you know, that's evidence your faith isn't dead. There's, there's progress being made. There's fruit coming out, even if it's not as quickly as you'd like or as much as you'd like or, or as much as you'd like to see in someone else's life, right? So that's how I balance those ideas. And um, so, you know, that's, that's what I got for that one. Okay. Um, Swift Justice, silly question. I like silly questions. You once said as a public speaker, you don't wear open-toed shoes. I was always... I was always thrown off by that. Why wouldn't you wear that in public speaking? <laughs> so there's sort of this inside joke um, at, at the Cross-Examined Instructor Academy. Uh, Frank Turek gives this talk, and he says, you know, he's kind of telling you just, you know, because you want to dress when you're going to go speak somewhere. You want to dress the for respect. You want to dress in a way, just like anybody would, for a job or for, you know, you want to dress in a way that, of course, reflects you, your personality, but you also want to be appropriate for the particular um, environment. And so the first two years I went to CIA, Frank would tell women, like, you shouldn't wear open-toed shoes. And so all the women who were probably wearing open-toed shoes, as I was that first year, I remember feeling like, oh, gosh. But I thought... That really, I don't know, there's something about that that just made total sense to me. Like, you don't want to be giving these intellectual arguments with your toes hanging out. I don't know. So that's just me. And I, I always took that with me. And I think I like it. I like it. I don't, I don't like to have my toes hanging out when I'm public speaking. If I'm, you know, in Hawaii doing an outdoor conference or something, I don't know. I'll, I'll go barefoot. But I just... I don't know. Maybe it's silly. I'm not saying like that's anything that is necessary. I just I thought that was a really good, um, really good thing. Okay. Um, let's see here. Um, a lot of people are answering some of the questions that others have asked. Um, so please, uh, again, if you have a question, put the word, uh, question in all caps. Um, okay. Here's one by Andrew and Amy Criswell. Would you consider fundamentalism in Christianity another gospel? This is a great question. So this is all going to depend on how you define fundamentalism. 
right? Um, so if you're talking about fundamentalism in the sense that there are certain fundamentals, meaning beliefs that you would have to affirm, uh, I would, of course, in that sense, I guess I would say I am a fundamentalist in that sense. I think there are things you have to affirm and believe about God and about Christ um, in order to, to be saved. Uh, again, these are not intellectual propositions or just boxes we check, of course, because we know faith isn't just checking boxes. Uh, faith is trusting in Jesus, but there's things you have to know about him, right? There's things that you'd have to believe about him. Um, so uh, maybe you're asking hyper-fundamentalism, maybe like legalism. Um, and I think that that would depend on what the actual, you know, what nature it's taking on. So if, if you're talking about an environment where people are adding works to the gospel, where they say, look, if you cut your hair, you're going to hell. Or if you wear shorts, you're going to hell. That's, that's pl placing the burden of your salvation on a work, right? And so I would say that that would be in the, in the arena of another gospel. Um, and so, you know, uh, but I, I'd have to know more specifically what you're asking, or if you're talking about the movement of fundamentalism and that, you know, fundamentalist modernist split and that whole time, I, I'm not really totally sure um, what you're what you're asking. So um, here's a question from Melissa. Is the church as the Bible intended it to be in the early days, not in the way the church is, uh, the, I'm sorry, not in the way the church today and its system has been influenced by Catholic worldly traditions and rituals? Um, so Melissa, I'm going to commend a book to you called uh, Christianity at the Crossroads by Michael Kruger. It's about second century Christianity. There's not a lot of books out there about second century Christianity. And the reason I think this book is, is pivotal for people is you learn you know, why, how churches sort of went from what it looked like in the first century to, to sort of more modern things like using pews and renting buildings and when did that all start and things like that. And um, I think that uh, this is a, a question that would be too broad right now. I think that the church is a bit of a mess in spots. So there are a lot of um, ways that it's not exactly as it, it was intended to be. There's a lot of false churches out there. There's false gospels and false teachers and all of that. Um, but uh, the best I could answer your question is to say that I do think the, the Bible, of course, Jesus' bride is alive and well. His church is alive and well. And uh, we need to unify around um, the core essentials of the gospel as brothers and sisters in Christ. And, you know, if we sit in pews or we sit in chairs or we meet in a living room or we meet in, uh, you know, a, uh, a sanctuary, you know, it's, it's not so much about the building. It's about the body of Christ being together in fellowship together. We're family, right? We, we are each other's family. Um, Okay, I'm looking for another question. Okay. Oh, here's one from, uh, I think it's pronounced Kaylee. Um, I'm 15 and I'm really struggling with my faith. I really want to be one of God's, of Christ's children, but I go to a non-Christian high school. Do you have any tips for me? Kaylee, you're awesome. Okay, so here's, here's my tips for you. Stay grounded in the word of God. Read the word of God every single day. Um, if you're in a public school, you are on a battlefield, right? You are 
Um, you're in a battle. You're in a spiritual battle every single day. Stay in God's word every day. Pray. The Holy Spirit is with you and in you. He will help you and guide you. Um, you know, you're walking down that hallway. Talk to the Lord. Help me. Help me, Holy Spirit. Help me, Jesus. Uh, recall scriptures into your mind that you want to just meditate on all day and be bold, you know, and being bold doesn't mean you have to go throw it in everyone's face all the time. But, you know, you have the opportunity, Kaylee, to be maybe the only real Christian a lot of those kids will ever know. And they will remember that. Live out the beauty of the gospel in front of them and you know, I, you have a mission field on your public school campus, and I know it might feel lonely at times, but you're never alone because God is with you, the Holy Spirit is with you, and you have brothers and sisters in Christ who are cheering you on and praying for you. And so I'll just, man, everybody pray for Kaylee as, um, as you know, this is, this is something that I think it's a she because I can't see a picture, but you know, something she's really going through. So we're going to be praying for you because that's awesome. You have a great mission field. Um, so uh, Tim Peterson is asking the question, how should Christians feel when a progressive church is struggling or closes its doors? Is that something that should be celebrated or mourned? What an interesting question, Tim. And I guess my... Um, my first thought is that it's both. It's both because it should be celebrated that the doors are closed and that people can't come and be deceived anymore. But there's a mourning also because you just know how many people have been wounded and hurt and led astray and harmed by theology, ultimately, that leads people away from the real Jesus. And so I think it's a little bit of both um, with that. Uh, but but ultimately, I don't think we should mourn because a church is closing. Um, we should mourn because of the people who have been hurt and led astray. Um, okay, let's see. What else? Sorry, guys. Question, Mark. Do you get annoyed that Thanksgiving and Christmas are so close together. Not really. It's kind of fun. It's like a it's like a holiday end cap, you know? Thanksgiving is actually my um Thanksgiving is actually my favorite holiday. Even more, I think, than than Christmas. I just love I know something about Thanksgiving. I just love it. So it's sort of a good little kickstart to the Christmas season. Um, but yeah, I know it doesn't bother me. Sabrina, question from my 10-year-old son. Hi, 10-year-old son. Why would God even create Lucifer if he knew how evil he would be and how he would war against him? This is such a great question. I'm really proud of your son for asking such a good, insightful, and wise question. The best answer I would have to this is that God is completely sovereign. So God uses all things for his purposes and for his glory. And in my view, uh, he you know, the devil thinks that he's winning. He thinks he's um, taking all these shots, but God's just using him in the grand scheme. And so there's never been a moment, not a second, when God was actually threatened by, the, by Lucifer. And so ultimately, I think God created Lucifer and created humans, knowing, of course, that they would exercise their free will to sin against him and rebel against him. But in his sovereignty, he's working all of that for his greater purpose and for his glory. And so that's why you don't have to be afraid of the devil. You don't have to be ever worried that there's a moment where 
We have to hope God wins. God's already won. Jesus won the victory on the cross, and the Lamb was slain before the foundations of the world. So there's never been a moment when when God wasn't victorious. And so um, I, I think that uh, it's it maybe maybe a deeper getting a deeper understanding of God's sovereignty might help you with this question as well. But that's a really good question, and you know that's just a start to an answer. A start to an answer. So. Um, Okay, Sarah, I'm looking to lead a small group of teens slash young adults to get them into apologetics and worldview. Is there a curriculum that you would recommend to start? Well, there's a new curriculum coming out called Another Gospel, and I, I actually would recommend that for um, teens and young adults because I tried to write that book in a way that's accessible, and I've had a lot of teens tell me that it was accessible for them, so there's that. Of course, I'm going to say that because that's mine, um, <clears throat> but I would say... Um, I know that the oh, foundation curriculum, I think that's for a bit younger than teens. Uh, Elizabeth Urbanowitz has that one. I know I'm blanking. So if anybody thinks of something that I can't think of right now, put it in there. But, um, you know, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist has a good curriculum. And I think I think Reasonable Faith has one for teens. Uh, so, yes, but I know other people probably know um, You know, that, I, that I just can't think of it right now. So um, Just Me is asking advice for finding a good, solid church. So here is um, just some general things, I would say. Always take a look at the belief statement. You don't want a vague belief statement. You want to know what the church is about, right? Um, I would meet with the, the leaders. I'd meet with an elder or a group of elders and just ask all your questions. That's what my husband and I did uh, before we joined the church we go to now. Uh, we just sort of grilled the pastor. Like, I just want to know, you know, how would you re react in this situation? What do you believe about this? What is the church's position on this? And, um, <clears throat> and so uh, I would start there, but, you know, take a look at the belief statement and— um, so, yeah, and meet and ask questions. Ask a lot of questions. Um, this is an interesting question from Matt Hamilton. Oh, he's asking somebody else. Never mind. Do you worship every time you kneel in front of something? Um, no, I don't, but I don't think he was asking me. So um, here's a, a good question. Randy, do you believe Rachel Held Evans was progressive? Her views on scripture and LGBT uh, are very troublesome. Yes, I do consider uh, her to be in the camp of progressive Christianity. She's um, She was more thoughtful, I think, than a lot of the progressive thought leaders who were writing books and influencing culture. But yes, very, very, very influential in progressive Christianity to lead people away from uh, historic Christianity in, in, in lots of ways, and particularly in her views of the Bible and sexuality. Uh, okay, um, some of these are repeat questions, so I'm trying to go through. I'll take a couple of more, and then I will wish you guys a Merry Christmas and uh, remember what we're really celebrating. Um, she's Moonlight. How should Christians react to supposed Christian artists like John Foreman seemingly supporting LGBTQ plus lifestyles? Should we stop listening to their music? Sad for me who grew up listening to him. Um, yeah, this is a really sad phenomenon. It makes me sad every time I see it. Um, the question, should we stop listening to their music? I, I'm not going to play Holy Spirit on that one. I think that's something that you need to talk to the Lord about. You need to discern for yourself on that. If it's 
there, there could be different factors, different artists, different elements involved. And it would depend also, I think, on how clearly the statement was made. There's no question this is what they are supporting and all of this. Um, it is sad, though. It's very, very sad because in my view, a denial of historic biblical sexuality is a denial of the gospel because the Bible is so clear on, uh, you know, if Jesus is saving us from our sin. And this is an immoral category. And if you're denying what the Bible calls sin, you're, you're basically saying, I'm not, I don't have sin in this area or, um, you know, people, this, this isn't a sin. And so, of course, we, there's a lot of confusion around this topic. I think that there are a lot of people that don't articulate this topic very well. Uh, I have wonderful brothers and sisters in Christ who experience same-sex attraction, but they're living in obedience to Jesus, just like all of us. The Bible requires all of us to, uh, to lay down our desires sexually. All of us have to. And so um, for those, we all have different ori orientations and, and temptations and things like that. Um, but when somebody comes along and says, look, this is homosexual behavior is not just, you know, it's acceptable for, from God and it's, it, can be, it can be holy. I mean, I think that's a denial of the historic gospel. And you're actually at that point leading people into a behavior that the Bible says will not inherit the kingdom of God. So um, it's really important uh, to be really discerning and make sure that you're not being swayed, but ultimately rather whether um, you, you know, end up continuing to listen or not. I think that's, that's going to be a personal conscience issue. TJ, is he NT right or NT wrong? Yes. All right, I'm going to try one more. Boy, my throat's dry. <coughs> Excuse me, goodness. Okay. Now my eyes are watering. Okay, I'm looking for one more. Woo! I'm not crying. Just really sucked that down the wrong pipe. Okay. Oh, come on now. I know somebody's got a question. Karen, Sean McDowell, Christian or lost? Christian. <laughs> Sean McDowell's a Christian. Listen, we're not always going to agree with every Christian on everything, um, you know. But yeah, Sean's a brother in Christ, and he's doing a lot of great work. Mike Winger, why haven't you been on Mike Winger's channel yet? That guy needs to interview you. I agree. Why haven't I been on Mike Winger's YouTube channel yet? I totally agree. Whoever asked that question is a really smart person. <laughs> okay. All right. I'm gonna try. I'm gonna try to get one more. Um, here's a good one. Question in the Progressive Church. You uh, went to, oh, in the progressive church I went to, did they ever teach or imply that Christ was some sort of pagan copy or invented by the Roman Empire? I didn't hear that in that class, um, but uh, there, were, there were questions asked about, you know, like, well, hey, why is it that the Bible is the only thing that really talks about Jesus, which isn't true, by the way? Um, I did hear some smatterings, and maybe it was just a, an article that had been shared, 
the idea that when Constantine came to power, that's when Christianity essentially got hijacked and it's been off the rails since then and we need to reclaim that. And, you know, uh, Constantine's a controversial figure for sure. There have been books written in defense of him, books written uh, on the opposite side of that. And, you know, wherever you land as far as whether or not Constantine was a real Christian or not, um, certainly God in his sovereignty used uh, some of the the things that he did uh, for good, and then there were probably some bad things too. So uh, I think that, uh, yeah, I think that, um, sorry, I'm trying to look at questions and answer at the same time. That's probably a bad idea. Um, so yeah, whatever, wherever you land on Constantine, one guy is not going to derail the entire church. God's just going to continue in his sovereignty to use things for his glory. And um, yes, I like this question. I really like this question. When is Lazy Mike Winger going to have you on for an interview? When is he? All right. One more. I'm looking for one more serious question. Uh, okay, I'll end with this one. Paul. On American Gospel, you sang beautifully a few songs. One that stood out to me was The Old Rugged Cross. Oh, see, I didn't even read this whole question before I clicked on it. Do you still write music and possibly get back into music? I, I feel like I'm tearing up just reading this. Um, I have written a few songs over the last few years. Um, I had really laid that on the altar and had no intention of really ever recording again or any of that. It was, it was a big dream I had for a lot of my life, and it really I died to it. I grieved it. I died to it. It was, it was just gone. It was something that wasn't going to happen. And I got to the point where I was just thankful to God even that, um, you know, that these songs that I've been singing at my piano for years, several years, two or three years, were just going to be between the Lord and I. And um, there have been a, f a few doors open, and I'm talking with um, a buddy of mine who's an amazing producer here in Nashville. And guys, I think we're going to do it. I think we're going to record a few songs. And here's how it's going to go, though. I'm not at all trying to get a record deal. I don't want a record deal. wouldn't sign one if it was handed to me. Um, I'm not trying to compete with anything. I'm not trying to get on the radio. I just want to record the songs that have come out of my heart in the last few years and provide them for people who will be ministered to by them. That's, that's my goal. And so we're looking at recording maybe four to six songs. Um, and in that would be some originals and a couple of hymns. And so if you all want to be praying for me in that, um, it's something that, I, there, it's a deep thing in my heart that I would love to be able to do again, if that's something the Lord has for me. And it does seem that he's leading in that direction. So I would appreciate prayers for that from all of you guys. Thank you so much for watching tonight. Um, just what a sweet time together. Um, Merry Christmas. And for those of you who feel alone and you feel there's pain associated with this season for you, just remember that the real meaning of Christmas is God stepping into his creation, not just to give us an answer to the problem of evil, the problem of suffering, but to literally become the answer in himself. And the light shined in the darkness, and the darkness could not overcome it. Um, so I am very excited for the next couple of weeks. Uh, I've got a couple of things I have to do this week, but my intention is to totally disengage and rest until January 1st. And um, if you
you want to join the book club, you can still do that. We're going to read I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist starting January, the first week of January. So you can go to Elisa, uh, facebook.com slash groups slash Elisa Childers Book Club. You can join in. We'll close the group uh, when we start that study, but you can join us in there. Um, thanks for spending this time with me tonight, you guys, and God bless you. God bless you. Merry, Merry Christmas. We'll see you next year. Bye-bye.